Spy Cops Info Podcast. A series on the secret undercover political police who spied on over a thousand campaign groups since 1968. Hashtag Spy Cops Pod. Episode 13, Media Coverage, with Morningstar journalist Bethany Riley. Welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. I'm Tom Fowler, and today I'm joined with... Bethany Riley, reporter at the Morning Star. Thanks for joining us. In the coverage of like the inquiry, and like, even the issue generally, there are very few journalists who have been following it. I mean, obviously, Rob Evans of The Guardian has been following it since the early days, but other than that, like you are the only journalist who's been to every hearing of the inquiry. And like that's, kind of, that's a unique position. This issue doesn't get much media coverage generally, and... like. You're kind of responsible for like almost 50% of the, of the coverage. It feels like a big responsibility. Does it feel like a big responsibility? Yeah, I suppose it does because, you know, a lot of campaigners who have had their lives turned upside down by this, they want people to know what happened to them so that things can change. So a lot of people have, you know, come to me and said, thank you for coming to all of these, mm. these inquiries. And that does feel like a bit of responsibility. But it mostly just makes me feel a bit uh, disappointed in my, in my sector. Not sector, in, in my profession. industry. But also I do understand, you know, there's a lot of pressures on different media publications and, and the ability mm. for journalists to be able to cover an inquiry from start to finish is so limited now. I mean, mm. you don't get anyone really doing court reporting anymore because it's just not the... And, uh, and an inquiry is a similar thing, you know, yeah. similar limitations. I mean, it's certainly for the way it's structured, you know, it's on from like half ten to half four. Mm. They huge publishing of large numbers of PDF files, whilst the yeah. doesn't really fit with like, like as I understand it, you have to file sort of like for the paper by sort of early afternoon. Yeah. So you're if the story comes out at the inquiry late on in the day. That that's that's not good to you. No, unless I can do a really quick turnaround. Um, but yeah, I I would have to um, identify the the angle early mm. on um, mm. and work on it. Otherwise, it's yeah. And and then I miss I miss a lot of like big things that happen later on in the day. Mm. Also, yeah, like he said, um, there's it's a massive information dump every every day. So you don't get access to any of the witness statements or any of the evidence linked to the um, undercover police officers and the uh, campaigners and core participants. So you sort of have like one eye on the witness in front of you and then another eye looking through these police documents and looking through the witness statements, trying to sort of piece everything together for this report. A lot of things then are missed and I, I don't know if that's something that's done like quite purposefully or... It's been a, a few months since the last phase of the inquiry. The undercover research group is still like discovering things from that information dump because nobody's had time to go through it all. Mm. But then the problem, of course, that for you as like as a as a print journalist is that it's not topical now. Like it was topical when it first came out, but it's it's no good you filing a story on information that's has been discovered from that now. Yeah, I mean, you can try to do that, to wrangle it in somehow. You know, mm. if you do a contemporary interview with someone and try to tie it all in. Mm. But yeah, if you're saying this. Uh, new piece of information that was released in May. It's a bit hard, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like, do you go into it with like a, an idea of what you want to write about each day or are you literally... Because I mean, like you were filing pretty much every day during the hearings. 
Um, or were you literally picking up a thread each day? It was a bit of a mix. I would do some research beforehand, you know, see who was giving evidence. Mm. I, I gave some, also, yeah, any sort of new um, reporters who came to the inquiry, like you were saying, it's quite, mm. it's difficult to understand sort of what's going on and to, to sift through the documents and find what's, uh, what information is necessary. But in, in you know, the opening statement of the mm. Council to the Inquiry, there were really great summaries of all of the police witnesses. Mm. So I would always read that beforehand. If I saw that an officer had admitted that they had had a sexual relationship um, with a campaigner, then I'd be like, well, probably the line is going to be on this today. Right, yeah. Um, but otherwise, yeah, sometimes it was completely random. And just what jumped out at you while you were sat in, in the hearing room, basically. Right. Yeah, and sometimes it was when everyone around me went, oh! <gasps> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that, that that must be a real difficulty because like you kind of imagine that like um, like I'm obviously I mean like because you work with the Morning Star as opposed to any of the other like press you obviously have got a bit more like to communicate with campaigners than most journalists would and you do get that sort of feedback but there's no other journalists there to sort of bounce off with at all so you are really left to your wits on that one I guess yeah yeah and, and it's also the first inquiry I've covered a lot, so it's also been a bit of a swimming in the deep end. It's also one of those stories that you have to go back to brass tacks and, and like mm. reintroduce the story a lot. Yeah, yeah, it gets quite frustrating to say the same mm. the same part, but obviously you have to lay the context, otherwise people coming at it first won't, won't know what's going on. I mean, like, it's something we, we've been criticised with this podcast for doing, is that we just mm. go straight to the deep end every time, but I kind of figure that, like, if the Morning Star can't cover it without reintroducing it, somewhere has got to cover it without reintroducing it every five minutes. Do you know what I mean? It's about your audience as well, though, I guess. I mean, your audience are probably people who were already yeah. quite clued up. And I mean, but, but with like, the Morning Star, the Morning Star readership is, is likely to be one which at least has a passing knowledge of this topic. But you still feel that like reintroducing it each time is important? Or is that something which is directed to you by your editors? Um, I guess it's just something you're taught... Um, mm. It's, yeah, just sort of like journalistic practice that you have to give context to what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, fair play. Which I guess is frustrating for you guys. It's also like takes away word, you know, precious words that could be used to say new things. So what kind of word, like the word limit you're nearly always working to is like what? 350 words. 350, Jesus, and there's so much detail to like get in. Yeah, I'm always trying to wrangle a long lead with my editors. Sometimes, a lot of the time, they say yes, sometimes they're like, no. (laughs) Right, yeah. You're not getting a long lead today, Bethany. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for fighting for it. Like, you know what I mean? It is like, that's totally what we need. They're like, given how much. Like the outside of news, like in the media generally, in drama and all that, like police corruption, police like misconduct. These are huge topics that are like of great interest to the, to the British public. You know, line of duty is the most popular bloody te- thing on telly. Yet, I mean, they're opening up state secrets about espionage. It's been mostly met with disinterest. I I suppose it kind of just goes down to like the psyche of the British public in that, even though line of duty is you know, one of the most popular shows. There's good, you know, there's the good guys, the good right. police as well. <laughs> yeah, People yeah. don't want to believe um, that a force like the police have been working against them to this degree for decades. 
yeah, I, I was listening to actually a Times podcast the other day about some journalists who exposed police corruption in the Met in the 70s or something. And they opened it their, their article by saying, we say this information with great reluctance or something, you know, because oh, they didn't want yeah. to... <laughs> you know, they had such faith in the police. Um, yeah, I, I believe maybe it comes partly from that... I think it could also be that there's just been this, which might have also been fueled by this like industrial um, infiltration of protest groups, but you know this sneering attitude towards campaigners. Mm. You know, so I think people, a lot of journalists won't relate to what a lot of campaigners have been through, so it interests them less, maybe, mm. or somehow they feel like it must be warranted. And it's very easy for it to be spun by the police as just defending undercover policing as a whole. Mm. So maybe also there's less of this differentiation that's recognised by journalists to, to show that, you know, it's, it's on a completely different scale from an undercover police officer infiltrating a, a drug gang or mm. a human trafficking gang. Mm. You know, this is like Stasi-style policing of, mm. of, of just normal people trying to make a better world. Um, I mean- I mean, that's yeah. part of it as well, is that it's, it's treated like a crime story. Mm. So, like, well, these are the police, that, ergo, those must be the criminals. Or they're people who've been, like, wrongly accused of being criminals. Well, no, they weren't wrongly accused. They really were, but those things shouldn't be a crime. It's a political story, yet no political journalists are covering it. It's crime journalists who are covering it. You know yeah. what I mean? That's the desk that's... Like, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's never really crossed over into being a political story, apart from maybe, you know, a, a little that where it led to the inquiry, right? I mean, that was the only time it was really reported on as a political story rather than a crime one. Yeah. Which... Yeah, it's I, in the wrong box. The, so, like, something like the Better, um, Better Lives podcast, which was produced by The Telegraph. Well, The Telegraph's mm. coverage of this issue has been non-existent until they, you know, one of the journalists the decided to put together a podcast about it, which was very much coming from a... Not lifestyle, but like it's a human interest story, right? It's not a political story, it's not a crime story, it's a, it's a human interest story. And like it's only coming from that that's kind of got the, the coverage it warrants in that area, but that's still not telling the story of what actually... It's because... not a wider picture, is it? Right. It's just these individual stories of the women, which, which is very important. But no, they would never do sort of like a podcast on the impact of potentially like of, of police spying on people who then got blacklisted, you mm. know, like trade union activists. Yeah. Um, that just wouldn't happen. No, no, <laughs> but not at all. Their lives were devastated as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, how did you find out about this as an issue, and what what drew, drew you to to covering it? Um, I think what first um, made me aware of it was the stories of of the women, mm. and then what drew me to want to cover it is that you know this is an inquiry happening you know, in my lifetime is something I have control over being able to, to do. It's something mm. that's very much of interest to our readership. Mm. Um, and I think I had a feeling as well that it wasn't going to be covered so much by the general <laughs> press. Um, so s- someone kind of needed to be there. Mm. And I think it's just one of the most shocking things I've ever heard happen um, ever. And, you know, when I go and speak to people in other countries about what, what's been happening here... Their, their minds are blown. They're like, how has that happened? Yeah. I'm also um, involved in some like campaign groups, so I think just on a personal level as well. You know, you, you can see how this has infected, you know, the minds of people who want to campaign 
there's so much distrust um there's so much sort of like looking at one another and thinking mm, you said something kind of strange the other day you know does that mean that you might be doing this or that and yeah I, I think something that was so powerful that was said you know in the opening statements um back in phase one was like and has, has kept being said how has this you know shaped society what could have been achieved by all these groups had they not been infiltrated um, and had the seeds of doubt sowed you know um, a lot of groups end up disbanding because they can't trust one another uh, or it's it kickstarts lots of other problems mm. and that's not even going into the whole like you know spy cops taking influential roles in groups and making decisions and all of that stuff so so yeah it's interesting to me and important to me on that sort of personal level as well do you see part of your role as reporting on that to like to that demystification element of like kind of you know it's not it's not everybody's a spy cop it's that like these were this person then and like by pinning it down to like actual facts about it it's kind of maybe less hopefully inspires less paranoia in people but we know what they did and this is how they operated and this is maybe an idea of what you should worry about and what you shouldn't worry about yeah i suppose that i've been I think I also take the view that even though we do now know the tactics mm. and you like through this reporting and through through what's being found out mm. of the inquiry, groups can kind of arm themselves or protect themselves against these. But I just assume that now those tactics have changed. But the information they're interested in won't have the, how they mm. like what we like, when we're looking at the reports, we, we see that so much of it's about networking. It's just names and addresses, names and addresses and, and occupations. That's a huge part of what the reports are. And though that the tactics to get those information will have changed, that's the, still the, it's the information they're after. That's what they're bothered about. How would you protect yourself against that? Them harvesting that information. I mean, I don't know as you can necessarily like protect yourself, but like that to be aware that that's that's the thing that that's the the thing you should be worried about. Kind of keeping an eye on your membership lists and all that kind of stuff. That's what they're going to be going for, right? Those kind of things. That what is sensitive information? What sensitive information is? personal interactions and not being paranoid about everything else like one of the things that's really common i think for people who are really concerned about infiltration is they, they dial down the rhetoric they oh you can't say that one being listened to i can't say that's not something to worry about what's mm -hmm. to worry about is that like well i'm meeting up with that person which means i'm like uh, yeah. do you know what i mean it's that there's no reason to dial down your rhetoric that's not going to save you or make any bloody difference either way it's more about identities and stuff and like addresses and... yeah and who knows who, and who else knows those people? Yeah. Now we've got, like, Pegasus and all this stuff anyway, so there's a whole mm. new level of scary. Some, maybe undercover officers are not... Ne well, no, they, they would still want to use them. But well, <laughs> I think it's that thing of, like, I'm sure that um, covert methods have changed significantly due to, um, like, technological Technology. advancements, yeah. right? But it's not about algorithms. I mean, there's still individuals behind that technology... Maybe those people don't need to be in your life anymore. Maybe they just you spy you through your phone and through like CCTV cameras or whatever else or however they may monitoring people. But you've still got individual officers assigned to you because of your involvement in activism. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're just not in your life in the way in which you can see their face. Or maybe not. I mean, that's a complete guess. I mean, what we do know is that the um, as we, we're like entering what is in the era of neoliberal policing, um, that there's a greater use of private contractors to do things. And I'm sure that the um, informer estate, as it basically is, you know, that huge numbers of people who are informers for the police, 
who may be a people who say exactly what they say they are, but are collecting information. Yeah, for money. For money, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that is... Being blackmailed or something. Yeah, maybe being blackmailed or maybe professionally. You know what I mean? They're, they actually are contractors. We certainly know that that's where a lot of the undercover police went on to do, was to work in private security. And th I mean, these are things which don't get covered by the inquiry, right, which are very linked to do with like corporate espionage and... You know, we have to look at something like the London Greenpeace. You know, how many people in that were undercover deployments from, like McDonald's themselves, from the police. Yeah. You know, you know, it's like, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. The link between the two, the sort of a revol revolving door. You know, mm. even from when we were hearing in the first phase, I think about um, a manager in one of the special branch units going off and working for the Economic League, mm. Economics League blacklist firm. Mm. Um, different from state espionage but you know like I'm yeah. sorry from corporate espionage but but like Mark Kennedy yeah. went on he was working for global open you know. yeah I guess as well in Mark Kennedy's case he was addicted to that lifestyle wasn't he right he needed to continue it but then it was his undoing because mm. they didn't have his back like in the same way as the police right totally absolutely yeah it was that they were on borrowed time with the with the techniques because of the modern information age we're living in, you know what I mean? Everybody's got this huge digital imprint, which obviously they would have been unable to maintain, you know. When they, maybe you can fake those things, maybe they fake those things now. It's, a, it's hard to know, isn't it? They do that in the films, but I don't <laughs> yeah, right. know. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if we've learned anything from this process, is that, like, they're inf very heavily influenced by films, um, you know, the, the Jackal run and all that, you know, yeah. from Day of the Jackal, in the inquiry process, where... And he admitted it. He admitted it, but then also it was said, "Oh, is that just because you know that was a it was a term you used the terminology?" No, 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 it was from the film. Which must be absolutely horrible for the families to hear, you know, because that's oh. what they were saying in their witness statement that they had suspicions that it wasn't like, you know, the result of any operational mm. necessity to to justify the use of this really extreme and abusive tactic, but it was mm. merely inspired by a film. Mm. Um. And they were so like unrepentant. I mean, it's one of those things that I kind of feel like this would be a bigger story if people could witness this. They're actually giving the evidence, you know. Yeah, especially the very expressionate ones. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was very obvious how little remorse they 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 really mm. didn't think there was any problem with that tactic. I think mm. there was a few who said that they mm. did regret it or they refuse to do it but I never really believe when they say things like that they just it's just they know how badly people th think of uh, that now um, but yeah it's very interesting to see these people like I was very interested to see the spy cops in the flesh like mm. well not in the flesh because <laughs> it was through a screen yeah yeah but um, especially like the ones well, all of them, but, you know, the 1968 to 1972, they mm. were there at the inaugural meeting sort yeah, of thing yeah, with Conrad yeah. Dixon, and it's like, you were the founders of something so horrific that went on mm. to just bulldoze your way through so many people's lives, and I'm looking at you now, and, um, yeah, very interesting. But then they were pretty boring, because they didn't say anything interesting. Like, if you, like, when you do cover it in any sort of depth, it's, it's kind of boring just to say how much, oh, I don't remember, not sure, you know, when I mean, it yeah, is. Yeah, when I look through my notes, um, I think I gave myself sort of, like, abbreviations and things, but yeah. I have absolutely no recollection of that. That means absolutely nothing to me, you know. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, 
it was sometimes quite hard to scrape a story out of things because um, maybe just out of uh, their denial of certain things or yeah times when you really felt you know there were a lot of times when um, campaigners you guys in the room were saying um, you know they had an excellent memory for these very minute details mm. of things but then when it came to something that was a bit more incriminating magically they lost their memory of it mm. it's I mean I think it's so blatant that not just the lying but the kind of the, the the faulty memory you know the way that nobody was there when Blair Peach died nobody was that nobody was there that day there was 18 officers at any of those major anti-fascist demonstrations mm. and then it, you know one of the biggest ones, one of the most notorious ones, none of them were there. Well, one was, but we don't even get to hear his evidence. In fact, in the case of that officer, we don't even have a cipher with which to refer to him to. Mm. It's not even a HN number. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine what that feels like for, <laughs> for everyone who, you know, really wants answers and had the fingers of the state or, you know, in all their lives. Mm. it's interesting though isn't it because I think like this story is bigger than those who are affected by it because it affects all of us because like you say it had a profound impact on the kind of country that Britain is now mm. so kind of we're all we were all infiltrated by undercover cops you know like Britain was infiltrated by undercover cops our society was it's really I, I think like part of the reason not I don't know if it's part of the reason but like there's a certain element of like some sort of ownership of the issue by those who are the worst affected. Because I guess that's with anything, any traumatic event. Um, you see that, that that's how things play out. Um, yeah, like this sort of sense of ownership of that problem or mm. not wanting to be mm. take on such a big role because you're like, oh, that person had it worse. So mm. um, It's not how it comes across to people on the outside such as myself but it's it's your lives so I don't know it must be you, yeah you're really in it <laughs> mm. the majority of people who are affected mm. haven't really spoken that much because like you say it's, it's all about trauma and like you know a lot of people you know when you know I mean, like at the very beginning particularly nobody wanted to tell their story publicly nobody wanted to go out and do that that was the last thing anybody wanted to do but mm. It was like, well, you know, tactically, <laughs> we're going to have to. That's that's the change. Yeah, you're going to have yeah. to parade your story out there to, so that people in, like, can, can connect on a human level with what these deployments were all about. Which kind of sucks, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want people doing all your shit. In terms of um, telling the story, do you think, as like as a journalist, do you think we're like missing any tricks on that front? I would say the only trick is, you know, people relate so much to seeing something played out in front of their eyes, you know, as in a Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs> um, not in terms of journalism, but, you know, there's so many uh, historic injustices that have been dramatised in the in recent years, you know, the Chicago... Mm. Um, and I always forget the name of this series but you know the boys who were wrongly accused of raping a woman and they were jailed for a really long time and it was all tied up with 
massive racism. Oh, the, is that the American one? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so bloody many. I mean, in miscarriage of justice stuff is... Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. I mean, there's the Cardiff 3, I mean, that's a similar thing, you know. But, yeah. um, you know, that really um, showed it in such a, like, painful way that touched anyone who watched it. Mm. And after that, the police officer who really pushed for these poor boys to be locked up when they were innocent, you know, she lost, like, all her book deals. And <laughs> right, I mean, right. it, it doesn't mean, like, she was in jail or anything, but... Yeah. To me, one of the things I think is is that we kind of got hung up on telling the stories when the real story is bigger than just what happened to us as individuals. It's what's happened to the country, right? what's happened to our democracy, such as it is. is and maybe our understanding of British history ought to be modified slightly. Yeah, well, it's interesting things that have come out, like um, a spy cop trying to get John Lennon... You know, mm. to play at uh, the Troops Out movement gig. And, and there will be all of these, um, you know, prominent British figures, historical British figures, whose lives will have been touched by these operations. Mm. Um, I guess people knew that John Lennon had a special branch file before as well anyway. The, the wider thing is, it is difficult to, to communicate and for that to be sort of a daily story that someone would write right. about, yeah. you know, it has to sort of be more a, an individual or mm. a particularly shocking fact that comes out. Mm. But in terms of sort of long-form journalism, I mean, there's definitely... That should be a story. Mm. Like the institutional sexism, right? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not just about the spy cops. It's about the police in general, mm. you know, and, and the way in which the police have a culture that's more than willing to use women in that way I think there is definitely more of a awareness and understanding now of um, police attitudes about women mm. and willingness to use violence or to ignore you know we have like plummeting rape conviction and prosecution mm. rates um, the Sarah Everard case which mm. obviously just brought all of that into focus mm being a police officer who murdered her. Um, and a lot of groups have now like either been reinvigorated or have been created and they want to, to highlight this. Mm. Um, and to tie then, uh, f from, from you guys, to tie your stories in with that as well. I mean, there were um, reports when people were talking about why sexism in the police that, that spoke about the deception of female campaigners um, by undercover police officers but it should have been an example that every single newspaper used when talking about this earlier in the year you intend to keep covering this this story right yep like you're in it for the long haul yeah I would yeah and it will be the long haul because uh, it's, it's a long inquiry <laughs> it's going to be a long inquiry yeah yeah <laughs> And, like, I mean, and also, I think like, that the story is, is bigger than, longer than the inquiry. I mean, other things, I think, will come out afterwards. I mean, we, we kind of joke the, the first public inquiry <laughs> into undercover policing because I don't think... Yeah, I, um, the Daniel Morgan thing is probably quite a bad omen for everyone who wants to get fast justice. Mm. It's like five inquiries later. Um, for how many years later? 40. Yeah. yeah. Well, 34 years, yeah. 34, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, like, ridiculous, but... That's the speed of British justice, and I mean, even now, like he's been, the family's been vindicated. 
um, with the the independent uh, panel report, mm-hmm. but like, there's still no justice. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the the next phases of the inquiry will be very interesting because it then goes into sort of closer to the time mm. um, the more sort of notorious undercover officers mm. um, I and I think there'll be a lot more press attention at that at that time I think yeah certainly when we get to people like Andy Coles Bob Lambert you know people with a, a profile anyway you know they, they they are academics or politicians in their own right as well as having this past Definitely. yeah and I've always found, you know, since the beginning that there's sort of two ang- two main things about the inquiry in terms of reporting on it, um, which is, you know, the evidence and um, police witnesses, everything coming out of the inquiry itself, um, and then the way that it's being conducted um, and the frustrations that, you know, the non-state court participants have um, mm. about how it's being conducted and you know your fight for transparency mm. I kind of see all the live tweeting everyone's doing is just sort of your fight that you've taken as well as you know um, being involved because you want answers yourself but you've also taken on sort of the burden in a way to make an inquiry that's supposed to be public public mm. um, so that's also an interesting point that I've noticed um, covering it since October and something that I probably wouldn't have then also picked up on had I not been around covering it um, physically mm. yeah so yeah and and that just has a has a bit uh, it's, it's um, yeah the way it's kind of being concealed from view, you know, mm. um, it, it's important on a wider scale as well for just how inquiries can be done um, in this country. And it's something that everyone should sort of be looking at as well, as well as what's coming out of it, all the evidence, the way it's being conducted, people should also be looking at that. Mm. It's great that you're coming to the inquiry, but not only that, like it was during COVID and it was during like the first set of hearings were during like full lockdown in London. It was a very surreal time to be attending Second lockdown. Yeah, yeah something like that so you know it, it, it's been even more challenging than it was going to be anyway to cover so you know like you know thank you so much for like making the bloody effort because I don't I would imagine you could have filled like the morning star would have been happy with you doing something else it wasn't like I get the impression it was your choice as much as it was your editor's choice to cover this story right yeah a mix mm. um if I had, I mean, my my former colleague Conrad, he mm. always covered these yes. things. You know, if if he had been there, he would have also been very mm. insistent. Um, and like Solomon Hughes as well, mm. a feature writer, regular feature writer, he uncovered a lot. He, I saw his name in in um, a lot of the documents because he had uncovered a lot of things through freedom of information requests. Yeah, the special branch files web, website. That's him. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the history is there with the paper. Yeah, very much, right. And I mean, like, you know, uh, the, the paper is, I mean, we haven't heard it come up in anything so far, but the idea that the, the, the paper itself wouldn't have been watched in some way by mm. covert policing is, you know, of course it would have been at some point on some level. Yeah, I mean, we used to always make jokes in the office when we were in the office before mm. COVID times that, you know, oh, you're mi5 is listening to you right now like be careful what you say and mm. because 
I mean, it definitely happened in the past. Any, anyone with links to the Communist Party. Oh, very much, absolutely. I mean, that's the original kind of yeah. bogeyman, right? Exactly. The original yeah. target. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And there was that, do you remember, um, I think it was like in the first phase when the they were getting inspiration, like the early SDS, mm. and it was a woman that infiltrated the Communist Party in the 30s or the 20s or something. Yeah, yeah. And they were moaning about how she'd asked to increase her salary or... And then they let her go. Yeah. She dared to ask for a bit more money or something. That was random. Things like that, they kind of they kind of delve into the psyche of what these people are like and this really odd mm. worldview that they've kind of they've got about like you know, you really see it with like the highest calling of the police is to defend the Queen's peace. <laughs> you know, this yeah. kind of thing of like kind There's of archaic language just coming through. Yeah. Yeah, there was one as well, um, I think it was Epps. Something mm. Epps. Dick Epps. Um, yeah, he he was saying that like, he basically considered himself and them as like the guardians on the edge of the galaxy. Mm. No, the guardians on the edge of society. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> the, the Marvel galaxy. comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that was very telling. You know, yeah, if only the thin blue line <laughs> sort of mentality, but even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're fucking nuts, mate. They're all fucking nuts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And like, please like join us again. I mean, like, um, at, at the very least, by the for the next phase, come like come and do another episode if not before. If there's anything you want, you know, and yeah, stay in touch. Thanks for joining us. Um, if you uh, if you're listening this far, then like you probably know, but please check out spikeops.info where you can find all our previous episodes. And if you're able to give us a five star review on your podcast provider, that really helps our visibility. It's so bad, isn't it? That bit, no, laugh away, dude. I mean, like, I hate it. I hate that thing. I don't want to be that guy saying, like, comment, subscribe. But that's what you're kind of meant to do if you're doing It's podcasts. just reminding me of the five-star thing of, like, don't give me four stars. <laughs> give me a four-star. You want to give me a one-star. Exactly, yes. Don't give us a four-star. Don't be that guy. Well said. <laughs>